Jesus Christ, who has no rival, no equal. And the reason is, he is the only one that can look us in the eyes, point his finger at us, and say, your debt has been forgiven. I don't know about you, but I, I think this is true for everyone. As we grow in Christ, our sins are no longer seen just in our actions and behavior. But we look back and we see sin has really tainted everything we have touched. Every motivation, every thought, every attitude. We see it, as I, as I do as I get older and more mature in Jesus, I look back and go, my goodness. And he says, I forgave it all. There's no greater words than that. It's a beautiful picture this morning. And Isaiah 11 leads us to that. I uh, Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 11. If we continue the book of Isaiah, if you're new with us, you can go online and catch up um, as we teach through this glorious book. I want to start with talking about the human heart this morning, and that is that there are very strong longings in every one of our human's heart, human heart for peace, justice, rest, happiness. But not only in our hearts, but outside of us, where we live, work, and play. And as we observe the world, I think most of us want peace, happiness, justice, and rest in a world that is so opposite of that. <clears throat> as humans, our tendency, as we know, is to look horizontally to get those things. And we even do that if you're married to your spouse, where we look to our spouse to give us what she or he cannot give us, which is ultimately those things. Our expectations are way too high for another human being or circumstance. What we ultimately need is to set our hearts right and to set the world right. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction with those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim where there are such things as water. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, bring ultimate satisfaction from the horizontal, that does not prove <clears throat> that the universe is a fraud, but probably the earthly pleasures Pleasures were never meant to ultimately satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. Here's a message for us. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for those earthly blessings, but on the other hand, never to make the mistake. <clears throat> Excuse me. Never make never to make mis mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of a copy or echo. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death, earthly, I mean the heavenly kingdom, eternity. I must never let it get snowed under or turn aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. <clears throat> Parentheses for every person in here, regardless of your vocation, if you're a man, if you're a woman, 
The scriptures tell us, Lewis is telling us here, don't make that the purpose of your life. Whatever you do in your roles, this is what is driving it. So our human tendency, in the parentheses, our human tendency is to look inside and around us and sometimes conclude that these longings that we have are imaginary wishless, that they can, are hopeless. But then God, what he does, he speaks this word into our thinking, into our living through passages of scripture like we're going to look at this morning in Isaiah 11. That, and he says these longings can and will be satisfied by the one that is described in Isaiah chapter 11. The one that Isaiah speaks of, the king, not only the king, but the king of kings, who in some ways is ushering in all of human history and bringing it to this climax that we will see this morning. Let me give us a little context. Last week, Monty uh, talked about this massive and powerful country of Assyria. It is looming on the horizon, led by its heathen king, and the country is huffing and puffing in its great arrogance against Israel. And God said, as Monty taught, that God would use Assyria as a tool to discipline his people, Israel. And then in the last two verses of chapter 10, what happens is God addresses Assyria. He responds to Assyria. And he says to Assyria, summarizing you, Assyria, are just a mere axe and saw in my hand that I will use to discipline my people. And when I am done using you in that way, I will take the axe and saw out of your hand and I will cut you down. I will bring judgment on you for bringing judgment on my people even though I ordained it. He's the only one just and righteous enough to do that. That actually took place where Syria was destroyed in 701 B.C. Google it. <laughs> so we are left with a picture of a forest with no trees left standing. Only bare stumps as far as the eyes can see. Imagine yourself standing on a hillside looking at tens of thousands of acres and there's nothing but stumps. No branches are waving in the wind. No birds are singing. No life. No movement. No sound. The world seems as if it is dead. But you get the most powerful pair of binoculars. And you place them on your eyes. And you look out over the emptiness. And way away you see one green shoot coming out of a stump. There's hope. Let me read with you, if I could, at the end of verse 34, 1034, and then move right into 11.1. There's really not a break here. 1034 from last week. He, God, will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a fruit from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. There's no hint here 
No hint whatsoever from 1034 to 111 that 700 years has passed. There's no hint whatsoever as Isaiah writes prophecy from 1034 to today that 2700 years has passed. So we need to remember as we get into this text, when we study this text, the two major events in God's redemptive history. First is the, what we call the first advent of Christ, where Christ came to suffer and to save. And in biblical terms, we call this the inauguration of the kingdom. That's already happened. And then there's a second advent of Christ, where Christ returns in all his power of glory. And we call that the consummation or the age to come. And it is you and I that live in this tension, and we feel this tension in the here and now, but not yet. We live here in that. And Isaiah 11 is unique in the sense that it speaks both to the first advent, it speaks to the second advent, and it speaks very practically to the not, uh, what is, how do you say it? Already and not yet, sorry. To the here and now, because we know as God's people, we have been given the kings, the keys to the kingdom, that we are to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So it does all three in a very beautiful way. So the first thing we want to look at this morning as we talk about this king is the king's attributes in his reign. Let me read 11, 1 through 5. <clears throat> says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He, the root of Jesse, shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor." And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. So, the first coming of Christ, the first advent shows up immediately in verse 1. In the form of this phrase, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It is figurative in language, talking about the person who will come from the lineage or line of Jesse. And we remember that Jesse was King David's father. And we were promised in Scripture that the Messiah would come from that lineage or that family. And when we read the word Jesse here, it tells us immediately that this shoot was just not another king in Israel's line. This was not another Ahaz who failed miserably in leading God's people because he chose to side with Assyria instead of trust God. There were many of those, but this is actually another David spoken of in an eternal sense. The second Samuel seven, this classic climax passage tells us where it is said, in your house and your kingdom should be made sure forever before me. This is Nathan speaking to Daniel, or Samuel speaking to Daniel. Your throne should be established forever. The shoot of Jesse is the Messiah that comes through the lineage of David, but he is another David, the David that will live forever on the throne that Samuel speaks of. So we see that 
This is who he is. And then verses 2 through 5 describe to us the attributes or the character of this shoot of Jesse. He grows from a shoot to a full-grown tree, and we see what he is really like. Verse 2 uses this phrase, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It can be or could be familiar to us in Luke 4.18, where this phrase was, was used. And here's the context. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And he walks up to the front, he reaches down, he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolls the scroll, and he reads Luke 4.18 that says, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and sight to the blind. And Luke records that after he read, after he read this scroll, which was quoting Isaiah 61, he sat down amongst the crowd and said to them, the one I just read about, that's me. I am the one that the Spirit of God has dwelt on to set the captives free and to make the blind see. Bam, that's a drop the mic point. Verse 2 continues, gives us three pairs of attributes of his rule and reign as king. He will possess wisdom and understanding, which is the foundation of everything. Because you've got to have wisdom and understanding, perfect wisdom and understanding to give good counsel, perfect counsel and might, meaning to fight for what is right, for righteousness and knowledge and fear of the Lord. So Isaiah tells us that this shoot of Jesse, Christ has everything he needs to bring this world back from the rebellion that it is in. And then for us, I think when we hear the fear of the Lord, it's good for us to understand a healthy fear of God is a beautiful thing because it motivates obedience. It molds our conduct and it informs our worship. I don't know about you, but I didn't like getting spankings. They were a determined, I didn't say the word, how do you say it? They were that too. <laughs> From doing really dumb stuff. Verse 3 tells us, and he just does not exercise these attributes dutifully. He does just not do it under compulsion. Verse 3 tells us, no. He says he delights in the fear of the Lord. He rejoices in the fear of the Lord. He says, I love to be afraid that his central, all-satisfying goal is to walk perfectly in the fear of God. That is a joy and a delight to stand in awe of God. We just got to say, how opposite is that from you and I? How opposite of that is the world? He's the real deal. And this makes him completely reliable in his judgments of men. Let me make a connection for us. Let me link these two. To put it another way, he says, my delight is perfectly in the fear of God. And therefore, I can judge justly. Those two go together. 
as he fears God, he obeys God perfectly, which gives him the ability to judge perfectly too. There is a link between my fear of God and how I live. That's the point here. So because his judgments in the world would not be based on appearances, the text tells us, his insights penetrate through the external. Oh my goodness, if humans have a problem, one of the top three must be that we judge by the exterior. We judge a book by its cover and we know from elementary school that we're not supposed to do that. But we look at what they wear. We look at what they drive. We look at what they do for a living. We look at what color skin they have. We do some dumb things. He says the just one, the shooter Jesse, won't do that. (laughs) Apostle John in Revelation 1 saw him as having eyes like a flame of fire. Isaiah is telling us no one can fool the anointed one. No one, think about that, can fool him. Here's what that tells you and I. Just pause here. You can't play with him. You can't just do what you please in private if you know Jesus. And then have a public persona can't be duplistic. He knows. He sees. And he's committed to do whatever he has to do to transform you. And we'll see this later into his very image. Don't play with him. And because he does not need anyone's smile of approval, verse 4 tells us, he will not step on the little people along the way. Even to the poor and the meek, he will just pure and perfectly. Justice will always prevail. He knows. Verse 5 tells us that he rules with righteousness and faithfulness. Isaiah tells us that Jesus is going to rule By simply, think about this, being true to himself. (laughs) What you don't want as one of your pastors and elders is for me to lead you spiritually by just trusting in myself. You don't want that. My wife doesn't want that kind of leadership. My friends don't want that kind of friendship. You don't want me to trust in me. Jesus says, I'm different. The shoot of Jesse says, I will rule by simply trusting in myself because I am righteousness and I am faithfulness. The belt here symbolizes his readiness to act for the cause of righteousness and faithfulness, whatever it takes in the world and in his people. Whatever it takes. The psalmist says, it is good that I was afflicted. Jesus is willing to afflict his people in order to bring about their righteousness and their faithfulness. John 7, 24 puts it this way. He says, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. That's John 7. So Jesus takes a prophecy spoken about the kind of person he would be, and he now applies it to the kind of persons we should be. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 4. 
The belt of righteousness that the shoot of Jesse wore in 11.5 in Isaiah in our text this morning is the same belt of truth that Paul tells us to wear in Ephesians 4. Here's the application. His character is to become our character. That's what it's supposed to look like. He is perfect righteousness and faithfulness. And as he works in us and through us, he transforms us to his very image. And his commitment to do that literally has no words to describe if you know Jesus. It is a radical call for his people to be truthful and faithful not successful. And when I say truthful, just for clarity, I am so good at being truthful about my neighbor. (laughs) But he's really speaking here of being truthful about yourself. Look, community group, you sit around in that circle, cut it open and say, this is me. This is my struggles. This is my sin. I don't want to live like this. And if you do that, you're going to change. High degree of change. Truthful. He's calling us to that. Secondly, so we see the king and attributes in his reign. Secondly, we see the king restores paradise. I love this. Made me feel guilty a little bit about killing turkeys for about three seconds. (laughs) Got over it. Felt conviction, slapped it away, kept moving, right? So, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. A nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So now Isaiah paints this absolute picture of the rule and the reign of the Messiah. And he does so by painting nine little mini scenes of what his rule and reign will look like, what it will actually do. What are the implications of his attributes in his reign? Starts out with verse six. It says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Just look at that picture. How unnatural is that? You have a predator and you have the prey. Wolves, as far as I know, they love lamb chops and they don't have to be grilled with barbecue sauce on them. They love them raw. Even the baby agrees, right? (laughs) We have this common expression in our English language, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that means that the wolf dresses up like the sheep and mingles with the sheep in order to befriend the sheep? No, to eat the sheep. Isaiah uses this very unique word here, dwell. It's a radical word that speaks of radical change in the very nature of something. It means 
that a stranger who is a criminal would come and knock on your door and you would open the door and welcome them in and have them eat and stay with you. Not many people would do that. That's the picture that Isaiah paints here, this hospitality between a wolf and a lamb. Then he goes on, he talks about the leopard lying down with a calf. This intensity grows here with each scene, a leopard lying down beside a newborn calf that can hardly walk. And then he says a lion will be with a fatted calf, a stronger predator and a weaker prey. The intensity goes up. And then he describes this little child will actually lead them. What a radical picture. Those who are normally predators and prey are now living in harmony, and now they're being led by a five-year-old. Look, this isn't the Pied Piper skipping along with, with all the animals around him. This word lead tells us that this child will have dominion over them, authority over them. He is like a shepherd who is driving and leading them, and they will do what he tells them to do. It's mind-blowing. Then in verse 7, he uses the cow and the bear will feed together. Now, in all the children's books and all these Hallmark movies, the grizzly bear comes out of the woods at night and he tries to kill the family milk cow. Not here, Isaiah says. Then in, later in 7, he says, the lion turns into a herbivore like the ox. So you go to the zoo and you watch the zookeeper throw a piece of meat to the lion and he crushes it. Now you throw a bell of straw in and he, that's a good straw. This is the new world. This is the new place that Isaiah is speaking of. Verse 8, he says, there's a nursing child sticking his hand over a hole of a cobra. Every mom here and here just had chills go up her spine. And a weaned child putting his hand in the poisonous snake's den. These verses paint this crystal clear and vivid picture of the application of the reign of the king. And here's what we have here, where the reversal of the fall in Genesis 3 is accomplished and finished. Let me take us back to Eden. To the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. All that God was created was good. He created man and woman, and they walked in perfect harmony. God and man and woman walked in perfect harmony with each other and with him. He places them in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, where man dwells perfectly with God in all of creation. Eden, in some ways, we call it what? Paradise. There is perfect harmony between Adam and all the creatures. You remember as God brings all the animals past Adam? None of them tried to eat him. None of them tried to bite him. In the first service, I said the hippopotamus did not stick a horn in him. I meant rhinoceros. I know my animals. This is a place of perfect peace, rest, and justice. Eden was a place where everything was covered and embedded with the full knowledge of God. 
creation in Eden did not groan as Paul says he did in Romans 8. In Genesis 3, though, we see where man and woman was banished. The angel was placed in front of the garden so they couldn't come back in. Man starts to hide and lie. And now all of creation, the here and now, where we live, all of creation is cursed with death and thorn and thistles. And immediately in Genesis 4, we see where the first murder takes place. Cain kills his brother Abel. So here's what verse 9 tells us. It tells us that all of creation will be restored, that the animals will not kill each other, that children will have dominion over man-eaters, and that men and women, men and women, Jew and Gentile, races from all nations, men and women can at least once and for all have perfect peace and rest and happiness, and justice. <clears throat> because verse 9 tells us that once again the world will be full of the knowledge of God. Restored as in Eden in the beginning. When it says the water, as the water, far as the water covers the sea, it tells us it's gone completely global, that the righteousness of the shoot of Jesse and the faithfulness of the shoot of Jesse will powerfully and explosively unload on all the earth in order that everything that is will change back to the way it was. Mind-blowing, nearly indescribable. We would say this, that when Jesus died on the cross, he reconciled God, man to God. And when Jesus returns in all power and glory, he'll not only do that, but he'll reconcile a creation with a new heaven and new earth. Isaiah's words to us, as are any prophecies, are meant not just us to know these things, but to empower present, God-centered, life change in the here and now. God has sent Christ to restore all things to himself, to break down that wall of division between, as I said, Jew and Gentile. As John Calvin put, he said, God in his grace takes wolves and lions and bears and evil creatures like us and turn them, turns them into creatures of peace and rest and happiness. As a Christ follower, you and I are to be filled in the here and now with the very knowledge of God through his word. That's why it is so important. Not only that you read, but what you read. We need, there's a transformative power in the Word of God that gives us perspective of not only was, but what is to come. And with, empowered by the Spirit of God, real change is possible, especially when it comes to removing the animosity that we have toward one another by judging them from the exterior. That should be the first step. So, we have the king's attributes and reign. We have the king restores paradise. And then thirdly, the king calls his people home. 
The king calls his people home. I don't have time to read all these verses, but let me read a few. Then you can read the rest for yourself. It says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, and from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Verse 12, he will raise the signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim will, shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they will swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines and in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east and they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Amorites shall obey them. Let me unpack this quickly. Verse 10 tells us in that day. That's a signal for us in that day that human history has a purpose. There's a special consummation. Where today, Christ sits in heaven waiting for his second coming. And this thing that God is doing, he's doing for all the peoples, not just Israel, not just for Americans, but from every race, tribe, and tongue from the world, from the nations. And this root of Jesse, Jesus himself, Isaiah tells us, is a banner or a ticket tape that's running along the bottom of every TV in the world that says he will draw all people of all nations to himself like a magnet. Revelation gives us that end picture. It just won't be Western Americans that look like you. He says that resting place in verse 10 is really home. That the kingdom of God will be, in the second advent, <laughs> a place of rest. You will finally be home. And whether you and I live long enough to see that return, or we die in the here and now, the security for you and I is that we will make it home if we know Christ. Verse 11 uses the phrase, in that day, a second time. The first time was the exodus, because later on in the text, he talks about the tongue of the sea, speaking of the Red Sea. First time is the exodus, but now there's this wider exodus of a worldwide proportion. And he says even the most worldly and powerful nations like Assyria and Egypt, they won't be able to stop this. Nothing will stop this. All human history will culminate and may I return. Verse 12 says he will raise the signal for the nations. The banner of Christ to gather Israel and people from all four corners of the earth, it will be so powerful that even Ephraim and Judah, that we saw just a couple chapters ago that were sons of Judah, one of the ten tribes of Israel, they who now hate each other, which was unthinkable, they will be reversed, and they now will be at peace with one another. Verse 14 tells us that the people of God will swoop down like a bird of prey, Armed with what? The gospel. 
not a sword. And they'll spread it out in every direction. It's speaking both of the here and now, and it's speaking of when Jesus returns. The true people of God become the agents of the king and the spreading of the kingdom. You and I have the keys to the kingdom. It is our job until the king returns in finality to bring the kingdom of God to earth where we live, work, and play. That is your driving purpose. Everything else is a subset of that. To know Christ and make him known in your work, in your house, in your cars, in your activities, in your sports, in your sports teams, whatever else, your kids, your wife, everything falls under that. And when everything submits to that, both happen. The kingdom of God influences your everyday life and you get to influence a world around you that doesn't know the king. And then verse 15 tells us God will make a way for this to happen just like he did in the first exodus when he parted the Red Sea. There was no way and he made a way. He spread a sea and let his people walk over in sandals and their feet did not get wet. He said he will do the same here for his people because history is coming to this. This is the end of history this is how it ends. Kevin says up here all the time, it ends well. It really does. And we can either be a part of it now, or we can sit on the sidelines and not be a part of it. But it's, un, it's unthinkable. I don't tell you, as I get older, I want to be more strategic, not less. I don't have another 30 years. Can you imagine when I look like at 83? It'd be ugly. But it would be rich, right? <laughs> powerful. I, I really think that. Look, it's unthinkable and nearly indescribable to sit on the sidelines as a Christian and not join God in bringing the kingdom of God to earth. <laughs> there will be no rest for the Christian, no peace for the Christian. <laughs> All those longings won't be satisfied. Unless you're involved in this. Our job as kingdom people is to still lift him up as a signal, as a banner, everywhere and in every way. If you're a student this morning, Mom's going to speak about it. You're to do that at school. No duplicity. Be who you are here on Sunday morning and be the same person with your peers. If you're a worker, you do the same. If you're a wife and husband, that's what we're asking God to do in this to match his character with our character. It's why on another application level, we spend the money and time and energy and passion to send people to all over the world. We're sending a team to Sweden. We send a team to Africa. We send people to Haiti every summer. And we're going to keep doing that more and more and more. And we unapologetically exhort you challenge you to give money to pray and to get your rear end on a plane and go because this is where history ends we call you to get off the bench and into the game 
Isaiah 11 screams to us that he will bring us safely home in his second coming, no matter what this life brings in the here and now. In Jesus, there will be none that are missing in action. There will be no tombs of the unknown soldier. Lastly, Jesus said in John 12, 32, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Ray Orland puts it this way, the signal is the cross. He wins us not with human swagger and intimidation, not even with human flash and cool, but with his own dying love. We still lift him up. What a beautiful passage. It speaks of his first coming, his second coming, and it gives great passion and missional vision for the here and now for those who know him, the king's people. Amen? Take a minute to ask yourself the question, so what? In light of where I'm living here, here and now, what is my takeaway this morning from one of the classic top 10 passages in the whole Bible?